The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. Good morning. This morning's scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 7, verses 12 through 14. That's Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 12 through verse 14. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Amanda. Good morning, Park Church. It's good to see uh, new faces here in the building. And again, thank you for joining us online. Uh, Like uh, was said earlier, we we really do kind of refer to people online often, but it's uh, it's important for us to know as a church family, a huge majority of our people are joining us online. So thank you for creating space in your uh, life and in your time and in your homes uh, to continue to gather and engage. For those that have come here this morning. We're grateful to see you as well. Um, Before we get into the passage, uh, I want to kind of just uh, give an invitation for those of you that call Park Church your home. If you're a member of this church or uh, you consider this your home church, I want to invite you to consider as we close out the calendar year, which is just crazy to think we're closing out the calendar year. Hopefully 2020 is behind us forever and ever, right? All these jokes about 2020. Like maybe we close out the, the calendar year and 2021 is just going to be beautiful. Um, But as we close out the calendar year, uh, I want to encourage you to consider and pray about giving towards Park Church above and beyond uh, what you normally give. And so if you're new to Park Church, there's no even like obligation. We're not asking in any way for you to contribute to what we're doing, but we are a church family. And so for those that do call Park Church your family, I want to join together and pool our resources together, uh, both as an act of worship towards God and our generosity to reflect his generosity, but also to mobilize the mission he's given us as a church. Um, The kind of need for gospel ministry through our church and the different organizations and missionaries and church planning movements that we partner with has not diminished in 2020. Uh, We recognize it's been a hard economic season for many, many, many people. And as a church, we've been able to kind of really come alongside people in the midst of that. I think uh, over $80,000 kind of above and beyond our normal giving has gone towards helping people and families and organizations in need throughout this year. And I think around $250,000 of our budget is kind of steered towards missionaries, church planting, partnerships around the city, but also what God's called us to right here as a church. Uh, We love what he's called us to. We think it's important. And so your financial generosity is a piece of what allows us to continue to kind of equip people and resource ministries to do the work God's called us to do. And so as we close out the, the kind of calendar year, just want to be in a position where we're in a financially healthy place as a church. We have been throughout this year, so we're so thankful for your generosity. This isn't a mayday, mayday, mayday thing at all. It's just an invitation like we do every year as we close out the calendar year to encourage you, for those that think about end of the year giving, uh, to give above and beyond to prioritize the work of God through the local church. And so we'd invite you to consider that, pray about it. And again, we're so grateful for your faithfulness your faithful stewardship and your generosity towards this church and towards others. Um, I think it's a beautiful thing that our church does uh, relatively well, and so uh, you should be encouraged. 
Um, we're going to take a moment and pray. Uh, I think every time I think about this reality, it kind of gives me just like, it's, it's stunning to consider that the God of the universe is with us. The God who made everything and who reigns over all things is with us, not just theoretically, not just theologically, not just kind of semi-nearby. For those that have turned to Jesus, he lives within us. His very spirit is within us. And he works in these moments as we gather together, even in bizarre settings. He's not limited in any of the sort of situational things we find ourselves. He works in us in powerful ways, and he actually also illuminates his word and kind of brings it to life within us. And so we're going to pray that he would do that this morning in a way that leads to transformation in our lives. And so would you join me as we pray? Um, Father, we want to ask you to awaken us to the beautiful, stunning reality that you are with us, that right now in this moment, we are not alone. Even for those that are in homes, maybe in an apartment or an apartment room uh, with headphones on to kind of tune out roommates or whatever else, or people that are in houses with children or other family members or other families or people here in the building, um, would you awaken us to the reality that you are with us, that Christ abides in us, that this is the hope of glory, the glory of God within us as human beings. And so would you speak to us in powerful and personal ways this morning? Would you transform us by your grace? And would you unleash us in this world to bear your image, to proclaim your glory, to share the good news of who you are, but also to radiate the joy and the love and the compassion and the empathy that is supposed to mark your people? And we can't do it on our own, so we thank you for your Spirit's help. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, I think it's fascinating to look at uh, a lot of the different maxims that are kind of like uh, make their way through history. So these maxims or these little kind of like poetic rules to live by, these little memorable nuggets that people kind of use to, to shape life. What's interesting to me, I think about as we approach this particular passage, which is a pretty well-known kind of rule to live by, it's the golden rule, uh, you kind of consider the, the rules and the maxims that have made it through history, right? So you think about like a penny saved is a penny earned, right? And uh, we probably need to like translate that currency to more than a penny since you know, like, we don't even have pennies anymore. I think everybody's run out of change. I don't know what happened to it all, but it's all gone, apparently. Um, and then there's, like, all these weird old ones about animals, and most of them related to animal cruelty, right? Like, don't beat a dead horse. It's like, how many times did that happen for it to become, like, a rule that we needed to memorize and live by? Like, why were people beating dead horses in the first place, number one? And, uh, and just, like, why did it become a rule? Or don't look a gift horse in the mouth, Still, I still don't understand that one entirely. Somebody should Google it. Uh, another one that I think I, I had to look up, I've used it a few times. Again, there's like more, there's more than one way to skin a cat. When I say it, kind of, I just, it's a part of like, it's one of the ones I use often that I realize like I sh I'm trying not to, I'm trying to eliminate it because it's very cruel. But I looked that one up this week because I'm like, why is that a thing? Like why, why were people looking for multiple ways to s skin cats? And it turns out the origin of that one is weirder. It's weirder. Like in 1855, there's a book where a guy said this. His name was Charles Kingsley. He said, there are more ways of killing a cat than by choking it with cream. It's like, people are like, well, I've, I've been choking cats with cream, and I'm just wondering if there are other ways to do it. And he's like, yes, there are. You could skin them. Um, 
it's weird. It's weird stuff. But then we were kind of like, those are old and archaic and dumb. Like, we, we've, we've transcended that. We've progressed. We're this kind of progressive culture. And so we've got these super meaningful, way, like, meaningful maxims, like, you do you. <laughs> like, really deep and profound, right? Like, like, these kind of like, hey, live and let live, right? All of ours are kind of like, just imagine somebody that's high making it up. It's like truly you're like, man, you do you, man. Like live and let live. Like if it feels good, do it. Like these are the ones that have like kind of are going to make it from our generation. And people are going to be like, people thought that was like a, a wisdom for life. Uh, and yet it is. And, and these are the sort of like the things that kind of bubble around society and start marking a society. But what we're looking at this morning is a maxim that Jesus gave. He actually didn't make it up kind of in its basic essence. The way he said it was different than anybody had ever said it before. Uh, but it was a, a kind of common understanding of life, and at its heart, it's this call, and in the passage, the way Jesus says it, he says, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. It is what has been known as the golden rule, and it's not given by Jesus in this context to be sort of like uh, just a little standalone statement. It's given as the maxim, the rule that governs and summarizes and communicates the essence of all of God's wisdom for life. Jesus says in this passage and in other places where he says similar things that this statement is a summation of or brings us to the essence, the very heart of God's wisdom for what it looks like to live as flourishing humanity. And so he's not giving it as another cute saying to put on a poster, another thing that will fade in and out of some faddishness. He's giving it as a way to govern humanity's existence and relationships with one another. And it doesn't stand in a vacuum. It stands in a long history, and it's supposed to guide us for our lives. And so what I want us to do this morning is actually kind of unpack what's happening in this passage because it's actually really simple in its statement, but it's profound in its impact. And what Jesus is even doing through this command to summarize what has gone before and to lead us towards the power of his grace and his presence is really, really beautiful. And so the first thing I want us to look at as we unpack this passage is simply this, that this golden rule is God's wisdom for life in his kingdom. This is God's wisdom. It's the essence of God's wisdom for life in his kingdom. Pay attention to the first word in the verse. We're going to look primarily, by the way, at verse 12. We'll spend most of our time there. We will lean into at the end uh, this next section, but we'll pick up in the spring uh, again on this idea of these two ways to life uh, because it kind of will lead us into the closing section of the Sermon on the Mount. So we'll spend most of our time here just in verse 12. And so the first word is so. The Greek word is un, which is this word for Therefore, it's connecting this verse to everything that has gone before in the Sermon on the Mount. Not just the little preceding kind of verses, but everything that has gone before. And what Jesus is saying is, in light of all I've been communicating to you in this sermon, in this unpacking of my wisdom for life in my kingdom, I'm telling you the way to flourishing life in my kingdom, all of it kind of like leads to this summation. Whatever you would want others to do to you, do that same thing to them. Because this summarizes the law and the prophets. In the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus is doing is giving wisdom for life for God's kingdom people. Jesus has come to bring the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. He's come as the king who's come to reconcile people who had rebelled against the king 
committed treason against the king, saying, I'm bringing you back near, I'm bringing you home, and the people who are broken and in need of mercy and aware of their need for grace and forgiveness and healing are hearing the good news of Jesus saying, come to me, and you are readmitted, you're reconciled to the king and his kingdom, and he's inviting people in. In the Sermon on the Mount, he's saying, and here's the way my kingdom people are supposed to live. Here's God's design for human flourishing. This is the design. This is what it means to be human. This is what you're made for. And so in Matthew chapter 5, he begins unpacking. He says, I'm not trying to abolish the law and the prophets, all of God's instructions in the past. I'm not putting them aside. I'm not canceling them. I'm not minimizing them. I'm bringing you to the very heart of them, to the very essence. And so he takes all these old commands that people had heard, and he'd say, you've heard it said, these things, and I say to you, so you've heard it said, don't commit murder, but I'm telling you, like, in your heart, don't even hate people. Don't have contempt towards other human beings. Don't treat other human beings as if you're better or that they're worthy of disdain. They're not. He says, don't even have contempt. He says, don't objectify people by lusting after them and treating people as an object for your own sexual gratification. Don't treat marriage covenants as these disposable things that you can kind of discard your spouse when they don't feel good to you anymore. Don't kind of look at other people and think, well, I'm going to love the people that are like me, but the people that are kind of against me or disagree, I'm going to hate them and kind of speak ill of them. He says, no, you need to love your enemies. You need to do good to those who despise you. If people are asking you to like help them out, like jump in and say, what else can I do? Like this is human flourishing. When you show generosity to people, don't show generosity to people just so they can kind of think you look good because you're a generous person. And when you're using your kind of religious activity to make people think, oh man, I'm super religious, you must be pretty cool because you prayed like that and you said those big words. No, like commune with God. Your father loves you and he wants to have you in relationship. Cultivate hunger for God through practices like fasting and and this kind of invitation over and over and over that Jesus is giving, like, don't live for material accumulation. Don't live to kind of like, kind of pull together and upgrade your lifestyle over and over and over again, but actually live for God's kingdom. And if you do, you don't have to be anxious about your life. And don't judge people and think that you're their judge and you get to kind of reign over them and tell them what's right or wrong, but approach other human beings with gentleness and with compassion and with humility as another person who's made mistakes and who has issues and who doesn't see everything clearly. It's this invitation to actually approach people with love. And it's like, ah, that's really hard. It will ask God, seek him, knock, and the door will be open to you. So, in other words, Jesus says, the way you could kind of summarize it all up is whatever you would want other people do, to do to you, do the same to them. That's it. It's the essence. And so Jesus in this verse is summarizing the Sermon on the Mount, but he's summarizing more than that. He's summarizing really all of the commandments that had gone before, all of God's instructions for life. He says in the passage, he says, for this is the law and the prophets. In other words, words, this statement summarizes God's instructions from the Torah and from the prophets for what it means to be flourishing human beings. Um, So there are a couple of different ways to think about kind of understanding God's wisdom for life. And this is kind of, you see this in different cultures as well. There are ways of kind of taking the basic essence of what it means to be human and by multiplying laws, like kind of accumulating and codifying every sort of situational thing and trying to have a law for everything that humans ought to do. 
And so in the Old Testament, eventually you have 613 different laws that were supposed to govern the people of Israel. In subsequent generations, the rabbis would look back at those laws and they'd unpack those laws and have kind of other kind of subsidiary laws that would sort of like make sense of that. And essentially what they're trying to do is cover every little area of life that we can think about and find a law to say, what should I do and what shouldn't I do? So there's the way of multiplying laws. So this is true in our society, right? Like, it's kind of like, well, that's not against the law. Our idea in our society is, It's only against the law if there's a law that specifically prohibits or says something about it. And so we have lots and lots of laws that govern lots and lots of different areas. I think often of like contract law, if you're working with like lease negotiation or companies or mergers or acquisitions or something like that, you're you're dealing with all these specific laws. There's a a Christian lawyer who said that their job uh, as a Christian lawyer working with contract law was to help people make and keep promises which I think is a beautiful way of summarizing the kind of the role of a Christian thinking about here's the goodness of my work. I help people make and keep promises. But helping people in our society make and keep promises requires a lot of like boilerplate stuff and a lot of like very litigious, very nitty-gritty things to govern against every potentiality and eventuality that could happen. Like what could happen and how could we make sure we're, we're safeguarded? So you can multiply the laws. And the Old Testament does that. The Old Testament has this wisdom for life, which is summarized in this statement, that God's designed us to love him and to love people. And then it's sort of multiplied into 10 and the 10 commandments. Here's 10 specific kind of outworkings of this that kind of transcend cultures and time in these really powerful ways. And then there's the book of the covenant, which we talked about when we preached through the Exodus, which then takes those 10 commandments and unpacks them in hundreds and hundreds of specific scenarios. Like if you're walking down the street and you accidentally knock over your neighbor's uh, ox and the ox goes in the ditch and the ditch dies. The question is, what would I want my neighbor to do for me if they did that to me? Well, I'd want them to replace my ox. Yeah, do that for them, right? So there's a law about that. There's a law about the criminal justice system. There's a laws about neighboring and how to treat foreigners and outsiders and how to treat your children, how to treat your spouses. But all of them are kind of unpacking this basic concept. Love people. It's not actually that complicated. And so what happened throughout history is the rabbis were trying to find ways to summarize the essence of all of these commands. They would memorize the commands. They would teach the children to memorize the commands. Deuteronomy 6 says, tell your kids everything, teach them about everything. But they were trying to find a way, how do we, instead of multiplying all the things and having to keep track of a a billion different kind of like, uh, kind of implications of what this would look like in different scenarios, what's the heart of it all? And so there are these conversations trying to reduce the law down to its essence. And there were rabbis that worked on that. Um, There's uh, a story in the Babylonian Talmud. It's really, it's fascinating. The Babylonian Talmud is essentially a collection of oral teachings from Jewish rabbis, really before the coming of Christ, mostly. But those oral traditions were eventually kind of codified and written down in the the kind of written form of those oral traditions. It's called the, the Talmud. And so you can read about what the rabbis thought about the Torah and how they interpreted different verses by looking at the Talmud. And so we talked about this earlier in the Sermon on the Mount where there are two very prominent rabbis in the first century, uh, really kind of the end of the first century BC into the first century AD. And, uh, and their names are Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Shammai. And they always had these kind of like, you know, this warfare of like, who's better interpreter? And Shammai was a little more conservative. Hillel was a little more progressive. And so there's a story in the Talmud that says this, and I think it's fascinating. 
Uh, it says, there was an incident involving a Gentile who came before Shammai and said to Shammai, convert me on the condition that you teach me the entire Torah while I'm standing on one foot. Like, I'll become a Jew if you can summarize those first five books of the Bible and all those laws, like, while I maintain my balance, you know, and you're just imagining, like, if you can do this, then, then I'm in. Because I'm sure it's, like, overwhelming. If you read the Old Testament, it's like, it's overwhelming. Hop into Leviticus, hop into Deuteronomy, hop into Numbers, and you're reading stuff, and then get to the prophets, and you're like, man, there's just a lot of stuff here. It's hard to understand. It's hard to get my mind around what it even means. And so this person's like, I'm in if you can explain it while I can balance on a foot. And it says that Shammai just hit him with a yardstick, basically. And like, it was like, no, didn't even try. And it's interesting because Shammai was very intent on maintaining all the sort of the details of every stipulation, not just of the Torah, but of rabbinic interpretation and the implications, like making sure everybody knew all the things they needed to do. And then it says that same person came to Rabbi Hillel. And it says this, the same Gentile came before Hillel and he converted him because he said to him, that which is hateful to you, do not do to another. That's the entire Torah and the rest is the interpretation. So go study. And the idea is Hillel just said like, hey, the things that feel like hateful to you, if you're like, I wouldn't want that to be done to me, well, don't do that to people. And that's basically it. Good? All right, so you're in. So put your other foot down and get after it. Like, go learn, go study. Because all we're doing now is unpacking that basic essence. And this was a common kind of, they were aware of this in sort of culture around Jesus. And so when Jesus says what he says here in the passage, it's not brand new, but the way he says it is different. The way Jesus says it isn't in the negative about whatever you would not want done to you, don't do to other people. That's valid. It's good. It's healthy. It's kind of fits underneath what Jesus says. But what Jesus says is actually more powerful because he's actually inviting us not just to like not be mean to people. He's inviting us to actually enter into this like spirit-filled creativity of love where we get to begin to think, what would I want other people to do to me? How would I want to be encouraged in my marriage? How would I want to be treated as an employer as an, or as an employee? How would I want to interact with my siblings? How would I want, if I was a, a grown parent with grown kids, how would I want my kids to treat me? How would I want my neighbors to interact with me? And as you start exploring what would feel good in my own heart, what would fill me up, what would encourage me, what would make me feel the, the love of other people if I experienced it? And just start thinking, even through the lens of self-care, appealing to this very natural ability we have not to get creative and like think about like, well, what would it be? And we have to like think about all these litigious details. It's, it's not complicated. What would actually encourage you? In any sphere of life, in any context, in this invitation, go show that kind of love to people. It's really beautiful. Uh, because it opens up this sort of open-ended opportunity to show active, thoughtful, compassionate, empathetic love to people. It's powerful. And so you begin to kind of see in Jesus' teaching, like, the kind of broad implications of it. If you think about it in your household, again, like with a husband and wife in the middle of conflict, you say, well, how would I want my spouse to kind of, what would I want their posture to be towards me in conflict? 
How could I show that to them? Because what often happens in conflict is like cold shoulders or frustration or escalation or distance that kind of creates distance. Well, that's not, if you think about what would I want them to show me instead of sitting there and waiting for them to do it, show that kind of love. If you're thinking again, I think about being grown children towards parents. You think about when I'm older and my kids are in their 20s, 30s, 40s, what would I want their posture towards me to be? Well, am I showing that sort of love or that sort of posture towards my parents? Like, well, there's pain in our story. Okay. There will be pain in my story with my children. How would I want them to interact with me around that pain? Or in the workplace, when you're sitting there and you're in a meeting and you're thinking about this idea that you have and you share it and somebody just skips over it and passes it and you're like, that didn't feel good. Well, what would have you wanted them to do to you in that context? Well, how do you show that kind of like care and interest in other people's ideas and the way that you treat others and interact in that context? What, are, what about as an employer, as you think about how you want kind of like uh, employees to kind of interact and, and the people in your workspace to interact? Like, how do you show that same sort of posture? How do you actually put yourself in the shoes of other people and actually show compassion and love and creativity in the way that you encourage them? And if we all did that, if we all did that, it would be beautiful. You want people to forgive you. Well, then be forgiving to people. You want people to encourage you. It feels good when people send you a kind letter or a thoughtful note or a sweet text or whatever it might be. Well, show that kind of stuff to other people and begin to think like, how could I in my home, with my roommates, with my household, with my children, with my spouse, with my friends, with my parents, with my coworkers, with my neighborhood, how could I show God's love to them? What, what would I want and how do I show that? It's really beautiful. It's not complicated. It's not hard. It's not like hard to get our mind around. It's like a really beautiful invitation. And what Jesus is saying is this is God's wisdom for life. This is what he made you for. When humans do this, humans flourish. When families do this, families flourish. If roommates were to do this, roommates would flourish. If cities were full of people acting like this, or if an organization was kind of had this kind of culture, whoa, it would be lit up with love and joy and gratitude and forgiveness and grace and healing. It would be compelling and attractive and exciting. Like, this is it. This is the life that is truly life. So go for it. That's it. You know, like grace and peace, like happy Thanksgiving. Good luck. But why is it so hard? Why is it so hard? It is hard. And it's hard because our hearts are bent against God's wisdom for life. In fact, as you look about the Bible, and you learn about the function of God's instructions for life, the function of the law. It is designed by God to lead us towards flourishing life. It's designed by God. This is God's wisdom for life. And from the Garden of Eden through the history of Israel into this teaching of Jesus, God is always saying, this is the way to life. This is what you were designed for. This is what it's supposed to be. This is the way human beings were designed to flourish. And it's real. It has that real function of leading you to God's vision and wisdom for flourishing human life. And the law always, always is also revealing the bent nature of our hearts to rebel against God's wisdom. Since the Garden of Eden, when God said, I gave you everything, 
all of this for your flourishing, for your joy, for your enjoyment, for your good. Just don't eat of this tree. Don't take upon yourself your own way to life. Trust my way of life. Don't kind of carve out your own way to life. Don't take the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because the day you take that path, it will lead you towards death and destruction. My path, my way leads you to life. Your own way, a way that's bent away from my way, leads you to death. And from the Garden of Eden, humanity took the path away from God's way, a different route, and it led to destruction and division and pain. And so God shows up again in the history of Israel, giving them, redeeming them from bondage, giving them his presence, and giving them his instructions, the law, and saying, this is the way. This is the way to human flourishing, the Ten Commandments and then the unpacking of those commandments and all of these different situations. And the people of Israel yet again chose another way and it led to division and death and separation and pain. And so Jesus is here again saying, here's the way. Whatever you would want other people to do to you, do it to them. And what we find in our heart, if we're honest, is that we leave on Sunday afternoon and by Monday or Tuesday, you've got these ideas and these things you want to do. It's harder, and you're like, well, I wish they'd do it to me, and instead of thinking about, like, what you ought to do, you're like, I want to send this sermon to somebody else, uh, to my spouse. They need to listen because I want them to, you know, like, all these other people, why don't they for me, and well, what about this? We just forget, and we're just bent in on ourselves, and it leads us to our need for Jesus. You see, in this passage, Jesus isn't just giving this sort of recapitulation of God's instruction, like, hey, you didn't quite get it, so I'm going to say it again. I'm going to say it a little more clearly, and good luck this time. He's actually come not just to kind of restate God's instruction for life. He came to save people who had turned from God's instructions for life. He came to embody this very commandment, to look at the interests of human beings separated from the presence of God and to consider our interests, our need above his own glory and his own desire or ability to use his glory for his own exaltation. He sees his glory, Philippians 2, as a reason to actually be truly, fully, beautifully human, the true son of man who lays down his life as a ransom for us that we could experience forgiveness of our rebellion, cleansing of our sin, filling of his spirit, and now the power to be who we were made to be. Often as Christians, especially in our tradition, we kind of treat the gospel as the kind of end of the sermon moment. We're like, okay, here's what God calls us to do. It's really good. We all fail to do it. So we need Jesus. Jesus died, so you're forgiven. Yay, go have a great week. That's not where the gospel ends. It's a small gospel. The gospel doesn't just end in Jesus died for you. The gospel ends with Jesus rose again to give you the power to live a whole new way of life. You are united with Christ in a death like his in order that you would also be united with him in a resurrection like his, so walk in newness of life. So as we kind of unpack and find the areas where instead of loving and serving others, I've turned and I've served myself and protected myself and promoted myself and defended myself and sought my own interests over the interests of others and used my resources to build myself up instead of to love and bless others. We confess that to God and he forgives us because Christ died for us. And the blood of Christ cleansed us so the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God could dwell in us like a temple that he could fill us up with his very presence so that we could be who he made us to be. So that you can go into your roommates today and show them love 
the kind of love that Jesus showed you. That you can go into your household towards your children or towards your spouse or towards your in-laws or your parents or over Thanksgiving and you can show this sort of love and kindness and patience and care and intentionality and compassion that God has shown us. That the end of this command isn't just we've failed, we need forgiveness. It's he does forgive us. And he's given us his spirit. And this is the way of life. Not just the way to a prayer to get to heaven when you die. The way to forgiveness and inside-out transformation. To be who God made you to be. To shine as a light in the world. To reflect the love of God everywhere he's called you to go, in every sphere, and through that to spread his glory and to lead people to the transforming power of the love of Christ. Let's pray together. Jesus, we need you right now. And we confess that without you, these teachings will uh, kind of go in one ear and out the other. That these these words that you've given us to, to lead to life, we, we are not capable on our own of actually transforming our own heart. And so we need your Holy Spirit. Uh, we don't want to be, in your own words, uh, kind of those who hear your words and walk away without putting them into practice, who build our lives on the sand. But we want to be those who hear your words and put them into practice, who build our lives on the rock of your love, and actually establish lives that are marked by compassion and empathy and love in this world that we would shine as light. And so I want to pray right now, Holy Spirit, all around this room and all around the city, that you would speak in very specific ways. I want to encourage you, friends, uh, do not tune out right now, but open your heart to the presence of the Holy Spirit. And Spirit, would you lead us right now to see real opportunities to show love? real opportunities in our households with roommates or with family members, real opportunities this week with coworkers or with extended family over Thanksgiving, real opportunities in our neighborhood to think about what we would want to experience and receive from others and to show that kind of love proactively through the power of your Holy Spirit. And so would you guide us right now into very specific applications that we would be people who hear your word, receive your grace, and put it into practice. In Christ's name we pray, amen.